I was interested from a betting perspective from fairly early on. I guess I was introduced to it by my uncle, who was uh, an inveterate gambler um, and always in the bookies. I think that I probably got thrown out of university, at least in part, because I spent too much time at the bookies. Um, I sort of look back on my life and I wonder if maybe if I hadn't been lucky in some of my early gambling escapades, that maybe my whole life would have been different. I think the first time I put money in a fruit machine, I won the jackpot. I think the first time I put a, a Yankee on, on, on the horses, um, I think uh, three of them came up and I, 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 I won a stack of money. So I sort of think maybe those things kind of colored my view of it all. And maybe if, if I hadn't had any luck in the early days, maybe, maybe my whole life would have panned out differently. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 20, A Seemingly Obvious Idea. One of the recurring themes of this podcast is the connection that exists between gambling and the financial markets. It's common sense that if you make a wager, you are taking a belief about the future and backing it with money. And if you buy a stock, you are also taking a belief about the future and backing it with money. So it's not surprising that our episodes have featured people who have worked on both gambling and the markets. Blair Hole was a card counter before he was an options trader. Eric Rosenfeld programmed a model to beat the NFL when he was in college and then later became a founding partner at LTCM. The professor, Bill Zimba, has invested in horse racing and the stock market. This episode is also about the connection between gambling and the markets, but we're going to hear from someone who had a vision for how to take this connection, which is implied or perhaps tangential, and make it explicit and direct. Andrew Black wanted to build a betting website that would work pretty much like the stock market, and that idea became Betfair. Today, the site handles billions in bets each year. Betfair allows its customers to bet against each other, so there is no centralized bookmaker that sets the odds. And this model allows more choices for the types of bets that can be made. You can make lay bets in the same way you can create a short position in a stock. Betfair also has an API, so users can create algorithmic systems to bet on the exchange. In fact, some of Betfair's customers are rumored to be the same quants that trade stocks and bonds. This is Andrew Black, although we're going to call him Bert because that's what most people call him. In the very early days, it was all horses. Um, I used to follow some fairly simple things. I'd have good and bad runs. And the end of the time, I guess I went to work in the city um, kind of as a, as a mathematician, really. And I used to um, I'd work hard all morning and then I'd break off for lunch and I'd go down the bookies and I'd probably spend like an hour sitting in front of the papers just, just studying form. Then I'd place my bets and I'd go back to work and then I'd go back to the bookies afterwards to see what happened. So it was kind of a different time. You know, you didn't watch anything happen live. Um, I didn't have time to be down there watching the races. But I did, um, after a while, I did um, start to become very successful. And it got to a point where I was making more money at the bookies than I was making at work. Um, and maybe there was kind of like 
a bit of luck in that. It's difficult to know. But I did make, um, a, you know, very consistent money for a reasonable period of time. I couldn't honestly tell you why that is, but um, um, I definitely got on a very, very good role. And um, so much so that um, I did give up. I, I bought into a racehorse um, after a particularly big win on the, the Grand National and the, 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 the Lincoln, which is kind of like a named bet in the UK. So I picked... Um, Two horses, one for each. They were 25 to one and 40 to one. Um, and you get a 20% bonus for getting the spring double up, as it's called. So I got something like, you know, I put 20 pounds on it and uh, I got back about 25,000 pounds, which back in 1983 or whenever it was, was was a lot of money. Um, I think it was like 1986, I think it was. Actually. It was a lot of money for me then. And um, then I bought into a racehorse with a few other people who were buying into one. I had used that cash to buy into that. And he turned out to be pretty decent. And we won quite a lot of money on him. So that was a different thing. So instead of using my own judgment, I was actually getting some information from the trainer. Um, there was one particular day when the trainer had three runners at the same race course. And we spoke to him on the Sunday night. He said he was feeling really good about, about his prospects. Um, and the three of them, they were kind of like three, kind of five to one shot, something like that. It was about a sort of, uh, it was like 120 to one treble. And um, I backed it in a load of different places. I sort of, you know, took a walk around the sort of book, the city bookmakers in London, placing a lot of small bets um, to try and to sort of, you know, conceal what we were up to because other people were doing the same thing. And we took a lot of money out with bookmakers that day. And after that, I actually gave up work. Um, because I had a lot of money in the bank at the time. And I guess I thought, this is an easy game. I'll just carry on doing this, you know, for a while. Um, and I guess when you've had a bit of luck, things do seem very, very easy, particularly when you're young and you don't understand, um, um, I guess, the world perhaps as much as you would do later. I guess I thought I was immortal at that time. And um, so I gave up work and I was partly placing bets mostly on horses and also playing bridge for money. So so I started, I joined a bridge club, started playing for sort of reasonably big stakes. And um, I was pretty successful at that. So um, I was bringing in money in different ways. Bert is a programmer who also gambles. Like other gambling programmers, he's used his skills to create predictions. And in my spare time, um, I started to put together um, sort of analytical programs, sort of odds compiling type stuff um, for football initially. So I built myself a sort of football odds model, um, just sort of, you know, processing each match as it came up and coming up with my estimates of probability for each match. And I started to use that to place bets on the football as well, which at that time you couldn't have a single bet on a football match in the UK. You could only have multiples. So, you you know, if you were backing um if you wanted to have a bet on the weekend, you have to put at least five results, five bet, five, five, um, five bets into into in, on, on, onto the slip. So you'd, you'd you'd be you'd be sort of I think it was five, it was four or five minimum. So you'd be putting on kind of like all these big multiple bets, and you'd only be collecting occasionally. But when you did collect, you would collect very big. And actually, at that time, um, the football odds of the bookmakers were so bad. I mean, they 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 were terrible. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, I mean, you know. My analysis just started to throw out all sorts of what I would call ricks in the market, um, all sorts of value opportunities. And instead of the fact that typically when you're putting bets into a multiple, you're kind of multiplying up your disadvantage. But actually, because my odds maker was better than anything the bookmakers had, I was multiplying up my advantage. Um, and I was winning 
I wouldn't say consistently, but when I did win, I was winning a lot. So, so my, my football bets started to come in for me. Um, and after a while, I started finding it very difficult to get them on. Um, I'd sort of walk in there and they'd be limiting me. So they were limiting me betting on the horses and they're limiting me betting on football. I could still play bridge for money, but um, I sort of, after about a year of doing this, I can't tell you exactly why, but I started to get bored. I think somehow it sort of felt like my life was a bit limited and um, my my card play just went off, you know, just went off the boil. And, um, you know, I think, I guess a year playing bridge day in, day out, it was just, it wasn't enough somehow. It was just, it was just, uh, uh, it wasn't enough to keep me interested. And I think there was a bit more to it because um, I was going out with a girl at that time who, uh, who I was hoping to marry and she wasn't very happy with my lifestyle. Um, so she used to get up in the morning and head off to work at about sort of 7.30. You know, she was a lawyer and, um, you know, she was working fairly long hours. I'd stay in bed. I'd get up about 10.30. I'd, I'd get the papers and I'd sort of work my way through the form and, you know, I'd have a cigarette and a cup of coffee and I'd, I'd head off to the bridge club at about 2 o'clock and I'd arrive home at about midnight, you know, having had a day out, you know, betting all day long and, you know, she'd be asleep in bed by then. And it just, it didn't work for her. And, you know, and I, 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 I kind of, I got that, um, but I was making money and, 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 you know, I was happy, but, you know, I decided I had to make some sacrifices. So I stopped being a professional gambler. I went back to work and I restarted my career as a, as a, as a program. In the 90s, Bert was working at GCHQ, which is sort of like the UK's version of the NSA. Actually, if you've ever seen a movie about Alan Turing and the Nazi code breaking that took place at Bletchley Park, that was the agency that became GCHQ. When I was working for the UK government at a place called GCHQ, which is kind of like, it's like Spy Central. Um, it's, it's um, um, I guess we were working sort of on and off with, with the Pentagon on different things. And I was working on some fairly sort of top secret stuff. But it was a very strange, very insular, rather sort of boring life. So, you know, I used to have to go into this, um, um, you know, this rather strange building where I didn't speak to anyone because no one spoke to, speaks to anyone at GCHQ. And then I'd get in to work at nine o'clock. They wouldn't let me in before. And at five o'clock, the sort of the sort of security guard comes around and turfs you out um, because everyone has to leave at five. And then I go home and I was living, you know, sort of 150 miles away from my wife. And, um, um, and you know, and so I only saw her at weekends. So I would just have hours and hours, you know, at the end of each day, um, just, just, just sitting around thinking of, of trying to come up with ideas, and I, I was probably quite creative at that time. And what I put it down to really is having that time. You know, I think having that time and being quite bored, and you, you know, you just start to sort of, I don't know, you just start to sort of, you know, freeform think. I mean, and, and, and I was coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas. And what would typically happen is, I, you know, I get home and I'd, you know, have a drink and sit outside and have a cigarette or whatever. And then I just come up with some idea. I say, oh, my God, it's the best idea ever. And then you go to bed and wake up in the morning. Like, well, that was a completely stupid idea. You know, that doesn't, couldn't possibly work. And, and there was this kind of cycle of having a really bad idea and then realizing the next day when I'm in a different mood that it couldn't possibly happen. And then one night I just had all the, courts, all the sort of ideas for Betfair just came to me. Not, I mean, because I guess person-to-person betting is, was, not, was not like the big idea. The big idea was how to make it happen. Um, the big idea was to, you know, the exchange format and, and um, um, how it would come together and so on and so forth. And um, so I had all that idea and I just kind of like processed it and thought it through. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And then I went to bed 
I woke up in the morning and I'm like, it's an even better idea. You know, you sort of, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I slept on it. I thought, this is, this is the one. I've got to do this. That story is a testament to the creativity inducing effects of boredom. When our minds are busy, they have little capacity to wander. Bert needed boredom and lots of it to come up with the winner. And I just took some time out and I just built it. Um, and I built it myself. And it wasn't the best looking thing you've ever seen because I'm not a great artist or anything like that. But it, it, it did work. So I proved to myself that, that, that you know, I could, I could get everything to work at you know, a reasonable pace and so on and so forth. But then it was quite a while before I took the next step. And probably the main reason was that I had, um, I was getting good money in. But there was another thing. I mean, my, my, my father was suddenly taken very ill and um, he was ill for about three months and then he died. And that was kind of like a really big thing for me. I, I, that hit me really, really hard. Um, and I went to my bosses at the Ministry of Defence and I told them I wasn't coming back to work. But I did have to go back and tidy everything up and extricate myself from all of these quite quite difficult programmes that I was, I was sort of in the middle of. You know, I was the mathematician in the middle and they really couldn't do without me. You know, you can find a programmer to replace another guy but some of you know all the sort of maths that I hadn't written up as well as I should have done um, you know needed to be sorted out before I left so I had to sort of I had to clean up behind me and then I left and um, I guess at that time it was probably at least two years since I had the first ideas that I actually started up a company and, 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 and set off to try and make it happen. Despite a seemingly inevitable idea Bert did not have an easy time with investors. Um, I think there are people more capable than me who can sell a story better than I can, and 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 I think I think you know I, I you know looking back on it, you can see other people doing similar things, and they raised huge amounts of money very easily. And the reason they did was because I guess their business plans, I guess their presentations um, were smarter than mine, and they had better buzzwords in it, and they you know they they, they put in some big forecasts, and they just sold themselves very well. Um, and I was a little bit I was quite old by then. I mean I can't. I, I mean, I must have been, um, I was 37, I think, we started up that there. You know, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, the first thing any good venture capitalist is they're going to look at you and think, Christ, you know, you can't be any good. If you were any good, you'd have had a good idea 10 years ago at least. It was as if, you know, why didn't, why why now when you're 37, you're telling me that you've, you've had some some great vision, you know. So, so for whatever reason, um, we were going to see all the right people, but they were just not showing any interest. When Betfair launched, there was another company called Flutter, which was also trying to capture the same person-to-person betting market. I want to detail some of the differences between the two companies because highlighting the differences makes the outcome that much more interesting. Betfair was founded by Bert and his partner, Ed Ray. Prior to Betfair, Ed worked as a VP at JP Morgan. So the company was founded by guys who understood programming, betting, and capital markets. By contrast, the founders of Flutter were two Bain & Company management consultants. Although, if Betfair had an advantage in domain knowledge, they were way behind in funding. I I took on, initially, I took on a business partner called Ed, and um, he kind of did the business plan, and I just set about building the website. Um, So I was, for a long time, I just did, I did all the development all the product development and, and a lot of the operations and marketing I was involved in too, whereas he did all the kind of financials and legals and all that sort of stuff. So I was getting stuck into building my product, my website, 
and he was he was doing all the sort of you know the other side, the financial side. And then we heard about Flutter, and Ed got very stressed out by it because he just um, he just said these guys are going to kill us because they're doing exactly the same as we're doing, and um, um, they're going to have literally twenty times as much money as we've got. And and I was like really really confident that um, that they wouldn't launch with the same product as me because the ideas hadn't come easy to me. So you sort of know, you know, it's easy to look back at Betfair and say, anyone can think of that. It's really simple and straightforward. And I could have thought of that yesterday. And, you know, maybe that's the case, but the ideas didn't come easy to me. And I knew they wouldn't come easy to anybody else. And I thought a couple of guys from America who are essentially not from this industry, who are management consultants, they might be very, very smart, but I don't think the ideas are going to come easy to them or necessarily going to come to them at all because because they're basing their ideas on what's there on the internet. And I'm basing my ideas on, you know, I guess they've just come to me from out of thin air. So I thought, I believe my website would be better than their website. And as far as I was concerned, that will be enough. This will sound strange today, but in the early days, Betfair's competitors were all trying to imitate eBay. Although that's kind of how things go. If Uber's the big success, then every business will be Uber for car washes or whatever. Since eBay was the big internet success of the early 2000s, Flutter and others tried to make that model work in bookmaking. So, well, Flutter and two others who were all rushing to build a website to address the person to person space. And we all launched our websites at about the same time. In the space of about a month, four websites appeared, all doing the same thing, all trying to person-to-person betting. And the other three were all completely identical to each other, all based on eBay. And Betfair was, was kind of an exchange. It was, it was totally different to anything else and built in a very different way. And it had a lot of advantages um, that they didn't pick up on. So, so I was pretty confident that we would end up with all the business. And we did. So Flutter had a huge marketing budget, but people were sort of using that as a stepping stone to us. And they were finding us through all the sort of, you know, all the chat rooms and so on and so forth. And we did a lot of things that they didn't do. We had a lot of clever stuff that they didn't have. So very quickly, um, they just found themselves sitting on almost no business. We had 95% of all the person-to-person business. They had a a whole load of small customers, but all the big ones came to us. And um, they were sitting on about 5% turnover-wise. And even though they had a lot of money, um, um, their website wasn't cutting it. So so we, we, we just won the early exchanges. The success of Betfair relied in part on taking a complex process and then removing the complexity. They had to make it easy for people to bet on the site. The biggest thing we had over Flutter, which is like kind of like really obvious, right, is that if there were nine horses in a race, right, and you lay six of them, you can only lose once. I mean, that's kind of obvious. but their software assumed that if you could lose all six bets, so you had to put up the money for all six of those bets. So it didn't understand that there's kind of like a relationship between all of those. Um, and so ours, you could, we would let you lay all nine horses, and then you could just do it again and again and again. And um, um, it didn't, it, you didn't have to put more money into your account because it understood your exposure. It was always tracking the worst-case scenario. So that's kind of an obvious thing, but for whatever reason, Flutter hadn't seen that. Um, so if you anything you laid on on, on on their site, you had to you had to each single bet was taken in isolation, and you had to cover the worst case, um, assuming that every single one of them could lose. So that was something something pretty obvious that they didn't cover off that we did. Um, and then there was another thing that we did, 
that um, so on Flutter they always put you'd always get the best value bet offered up to you first. But somebody would go in and say, I'll offer you Manchester United at even money. And then the next guy would say, well, I'll offer you 1000 to 999 So they would just creep in front of them by just a tiny little amount. And the next guy would say, well, I'm going to go to the front of the queue by offering 999 over 998 And this would be like just the tiniest little increment. So you'd have this ridiculous game of leapfrog where everybody was just offering just a tiny, tiny bit more value than the, than the previous guy. Um, but we built in this kind of like increment, um, all of these increment rules. So if somebody's in there at a price of two um, or even money, then the next guy's got to go to 2.05, and then the next guy's got to go to 2.1. So if you're going to jump in front of somebody, it has to be a meaningful jump. And, you know, that, again, is, is something that I think is fairly obvious, but they didn't price that into their um, software. So their software, which is based on eBay, their, their website, um, it was just basically just said, you can do anything you like. There were no rules. So, and they didn't aggregate. So if you come to Betfair, you see you want to have a bet on, I don't know, some American football bet. You know, you want to, there'll be like, there might be, uh, I don't know, $3,000 up there or something like that. And you can take as much as you want. You can you can have 50 or you can have 1,000 or 2,000 or you can put up 5,000 and leave 2,000 up there. With Flutter, you would go there and you would see like, 500 different bets, and you'd have to just take them all. So I'll take that one, that one, that one, that one. But your choice was either you take the whole bet or nothing. You couldn't take part of the bet. So people would just come in, and they would sort of hoover up like 100 different bets all at different prices. So so each bet had to be one match bargain. So that just made the whole thing much more inefficient. And it's kind of obvious that the exchange way is the way to go. Um, but um, anyway, it hadn't been obvious to them. And it, to be fair, it hadn't been obvious to anyone else either. So everybody was thinking eBay. So, so we just had a big advantage over them at that time. The difficulty of what Bert was doing is perhaps best illustrated by looking at the companies trying to win the U.S. betting market now. They spend billions on marketing and lose money for years in order to win the customer acquisition game. But Betfair didn't have that luxury. They launched just after the peak of the dot-com bubble. So the days of internet startups getting the benefit of the doubt were over. Betfair's approach to the problem of trying to attract customers while spending very little money was to get creative. We didn't have a big marketing budget. So, so, so you know, at the time we launched, Flutter had all the money and we, we didn't have much. But um, we had to, so we concentrated on PR. So we concentrated on trying to get the newspapers to write stories about us rather than actually pay them for advertising. So we started to do some slightly ridiculous things to try and get our names in the papers. So um, um, the first thing we did, which was a disaster, we, um, um, we organized a big um, funeral march through the city of London, um, declaring um, the bookie is dead. So we had kind of this coffin and we had all these people dressed up in kind of dirty old mats and that sort of thing, carrying this coffin through the city of London with, with all their, um, um, carrying all these uh, uh, placards and so on, saying, oh, the bookie is dead. But the day before we did that um, was this, um, company called, uh, called something like Funerals For You or some really, really sort of ridiculous name. Um, they um, did a fake funeral through London 
And this caused an awful lot of bad press. So some of the papers uh, caught on to it and said, you know, can you believe these guys doing a fake funeral, making fun out of people dying? And um, um, it was it was all over the press, literally the day before we did our fake funeral march. And as a result, um, our PR advisors um, advised that we pull it. Um, so, so we, so that never actually happened, despite the fact that we've lined up all of these out-of-work actors to come and, you know, to pre- pretend to be bookmakers. So that was a bit of a disaster. Um, but instead of that, we did a, we did a protest march. So again, we had all of these guys with, 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 you know, carrying their sort of placards saying "ban Betfair, Betfair," you know, must be stopped. This sort of thing, um, 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 and all pretending to be sort of, you know, coarse bookmakers. Um, and they they did their march through the London, hold, handing out handing out um, um, leaflets to people saying we must stop this terrible company, so on and so forth. And I didn't, I, I wasn't following it because I was working on some some big launch thing that we were doing. And I turned up for the launch party at the same time as the um, bookmakers turned up with all their placards, and they all attacked me, you know, hitting me over the head with all of these 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 signs and that sort of thing. Um, and I didn't realise I didn't see them coming or anything. It was quite funny, and it was all filmed by. Um, various people and you know it went out on the radio and had a little spot on on the tv and that sort of thing and 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 you know it was just you know stealing that stealing those sort of um that press coverage not by advertising but just just by being kind of in your face what you know what i would call guerrilla marketing um because you know that just got around the fact that we just didn't have any budget the disparity in funding would have made betfair a big underdog in their competition with flutter but the fight only lasted about 18 months. I mean, we were winning at the time, but at the time that we came, we put the businesses together. They had reinvented their business in Betfair's image. So they got rid of the original eBay type marketplace and they'd replaced it with an exchange type marketplace, which looked just like Betfair. And that kind of upset me because I felt that I'd been plagiarized um, and I was very angry. And I sort of, I sort of, they were kind of like my hate figures, these flutter guys. And I really, really didn't like them, even though I'd never, ever met them. And then we started to talk about putting the businesses together. And we went in and I met Josh Hanna for the first time. And I really, really liked him. I didn't expect to. I just He was kind of like in my head. He was like this kind of terrible enemy who was, was trying to destroy my business. But actually, he's, he's a guy who has a really good sense of humor. And um, um, I just kind of gelled with him the first time I met him. Um, and um, um, it just got on great. So, um, you know, the businesses came together as, as well as they could. It's always difficult to put two businesses together because you're going to lose a lot of people. But um, they did come together, and we were much, much stronger afterwards. Flutter had money in the bank, and Betfair was profitable. So the combination made a very strong company. In fact, a few years later, SoftBank cashed out some of the founders and early investors. That deal valued the company at about a billion and a half pounds. It's also worth noting that Betfair didn't just have competition from eBay lookalikes. They were still going up against traditional bookies. I, I think that we did. Um, we were a problem for the bookmakers because we sort of disintermediated them. So we took them out the middle. We meant that anyone, we sort of democratized bookmaking. We meant, you know, so that anyone could become a bookmaker. And they really didn't like that. Um, but as the years have gone on, they have come to live with us. Um, I guess they don't have a lot of choice about that. So, yes, they were much more afraid of us in the early days um, than, than they are now, of course. You know, we all, we all live side by side now. And in fact, Betfair has, you know, is part of a big bookmaker anyway now. So, um, yeah, they, they, they feared us at the time. So Chris, um, what's his name? The, the main guy at uh, Ladbrokes, um, Chris Bell, 
he said that Betfair used to keep him awake at night every night. He said he just, he just lived in fear of what we were doing. Betting exchanges have struggled in the U.S. because even as sports betting has become increasingly legal, there are rules against pooling liquidity across state lines. You can't make a betting exchange work in Iowa if users can only bet against other people in Iowa. Bert says that the regulatory environment has always been important for Betfair. I think when we launched in the UK, we were, we were in a gray area. So a lot of people thought that our business was illegal when we launched it in the UK, and they argued that against us. And I think in that instance, we, we, we literally, we could never have got going if we hadn't have just launched it. So that was a case of asking for forgiveness and not permission, as we did in the UK. Um, but it was considered sufficiently gray. And then the bigger you get, the more you kind of have something to lose if, if, if somebody's going to take action against you. So we kind of, we stayed out of the US, for example, because we thought that it could get a bit hot for us there and we didn't want to take that chance. And some people were trying to argue that all betting was legal in the US and, you know, some interpretation of the legislation meant that they could do it. But we never played that game. So we, we've always, we always played it by, by what we considered to be the rules. We always, we spent a huge amount of money on legal advice. Um, um, sometimes I might look back and think maybe we should have, should have chanced our arm a little bit more. Um, but, um, but we didn't, we played it safe and, 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 and actually, you know, we did fine that way. One of the byproducts of the success of the company is that they had resources to hire more people. On one hand, that meant that Bert didn't have to do everything. On the other hand, that meant that Bert didn't get to do everything. When we launched, I was like, I had pretty big ownership of everything. So I was in charge of all technology or product. Um, a lot of the ops, um, I was in the middle of a lot of the marketing and then everything else I was just kind of like on the periphery of, but, but invariably sitting in on it and including all the press stuff. And I guess I think I am that guy who thrives in that kind of situation when I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. There's a lot going on. Um, I've got, you know, my fingers in all the different pies in the company. And then as you build a business out, you start bringing in specialist people and um, as that occurs, you are kind of narrowing down your responsibility piece by piece. And um, you, I kind of back myself into a corner deliberately by giving away, um, um, taking on new people and giving them, I guess, giving them ownership that I had in the company at that time. And I wanted to do that because that feels like the right thing to do. But every time, you know, I take on a guy to head up product and then I take on a CTO to head up technology and then you're bringing in new people in, in operations and so on and so forth. And by the time that kind of building out the business has finished, I've kind of got nothing left to, to own apart from some of this kind of product stuff. And, and at the same time, what is happening is, that, you know, that the development team, including the product development, you know, has grown from about 10 or 11 people to about 150 people, each one of which is, is, is specializing in, in, you know, more and more specialist things. And at the same time, we seem to have slowed down. And that, and that kind of sounds crazy. But um, I guess in the early days, I, you know, I build something and we just roll it out immediately the next day. And, and somebody would ring up and say, you've got this horrible bug. And even if I do this, I get all this free money. And, and I kind of laugh and I'd fix it and fix it the next day. And then, and then you get another. I mean, we've got so many bugs. And sometimes we do ridiculous things and the site would go down and we just bring it back up again. And we didn't really care. I mean, of course we cared. Nobody wants to have bugs, but you're moving that fast. You can't afford to, um, you, you can't afford to, to, to um, check everything 
through to the sort of extent that, that a large company would do. Um, because we're having to compete and all the time Flutter was trying to close us down and so on and so forth in, in terms of technology. So we were moving very, very fast and making a lot of mistakes and not worrying that much about it. And then and then the bigger you get, you can't afford to make mistakes anymore. You can't afford to put out buggy software anymore. And all the while the internet's getting more and more mature and you know, when you put something out there, it's gotta it's gotta work on all these different browsers, it's gotta work on all these different you know, on your mobile, it's it's you know, it's gotta work on all the different um service providers on the internet because they all operate in different ways and they cache data in different ways and so on and so forth. And um, um, it just got it just got so slow because of all these different reasons and all the security and we're suffering denial of service attacks all the time and everyone's trying to hack us and all this sort of stuff. So so you're just kind of building up your defenses, you're dealing with all the evolution of the internet um, and, and everything just got very, very slow. And I, I, I did start to get bored at that time. For the first 18 months, I made every decision on product priority. So if we built something, it was because I decided we were going to do it. And other members of the team would come to me and try to sort of get in there and make me do things their way. And I would like to, I wouldn't have it. I wasn't having anyone making any decisions apart from me. So I was very defensive of my turf. And then at some point, um, I think I probably made a couple of mistakes. I think you always do. I think everyone does. I probably rolled out some stuff that wasn't very good, and I wouldn't have worried about it that much. And I think I once built something that took like six weeks to build, and then I scrapped it and never even put it out because I didn't like it. And you do that sort of thing, then people sort of start to lose faith in you a bit. And then, and then we, instead of having me deciding everything, there was kind of like um, a committee to decide it. And then you've got the committee that's deciding it, all your priorities, and then there's all this stuff that I want to build, and they're going to find something that has a sort of more immediate commercial, more immediate payout. And so, and the priority list ends up being dictated by what's going to give you some money back tomorrow, not what's in your best long-term interests. And that was a frustration for me, was that, was that you know, we'd sit down, we'd have these discussions about priority. And I'd say, hey, I want to build in this kind of thing, which kind of like puts sort of form on a sort of horse racing page. And I think that'd be really interesting because that's going to drive more value in the long term. And somebody else is going to say, hey, but I, I want to put a roulette wheel here in the in the bet manager and, and you know we're going to get some we're going to get some money out of that and we've kind of modeled it and we think this is how much money we're going to make from that and i'm like i don't want to put a roulette wheel in the bet manager but you are going to make more money from that i accept that and you obviously want that so so you know you kind of get outvoted because because people are just looking at it from a pure economic and relatively short-term perspective i think i lost a little bit of heart at that time betfair has also been confronted with a universal problem for gaming companies which is what to do with winners. Actually, most companies don't really struggle with this issue. They utilize a keep it simple, stupid approach. They just kick out the winners. But Betfair has a different calculus because the biggest winners on the site provide the liquidity that the other users bet into. The relationship is symbiotic. The exchange provides the infrastructure and the winners act as market makers. So instead of kicking out the winners, Betfair decided to tax them. A small percent of customers pay anywhere from 20 to 60% of winnings, which is known as the premium charge. All of the charging, the commission rates and so on and so forth, I think I, I kind of mostly put that together. So there was kind of like a sliding scale. So the bigger you were, the less you paid. So the bigger customers paid less, they, they came down to 2%. And you're only paying that 2% on your winnings. It's not on your on the overall. So that's typically a very small number. So of the overall, it's like, you know, some fraction of a percentage. Um, and I think 
we got to a point when we realized that there were certain people who were making very large amounts of money um, from Betfair just simply because they were very, very good at what they did. And, um, um, you know, and somebody somewhere realized that if we charge them a lot more money, they're not going to go anywhere because they're still making a lot of money, just not as much as they were making. So, so there was sort of, then there's kind of like this idea, well, we'll do the premium charge, you know, because these guys, they should be paying more, they should be contributing more. So it was proposed at the board that we do this and um, everyone had their vote on it and I was the last person to vote. Um, and I, 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 it came around to me and I'm just like, no, I just really don't want to do this. I don't know why we would want to go to war with our biggest customers at this time. So I put kind of like a strong sort of plea not to do it to the business. And, um, but, I, but I was literally the only person who didn't want to do it. And then, and then, then they didn't do it. And, um, um, and I went to see the chief executive, a very good friend of mine, um, who I rate very much. And I said, why didn't you do it? And he said, well, you cast too big a shadow. Bert. He always called me Bert. Most people call me Bert. And, um, and I'm like, what do you mean? You know, the board voted on it and they, they voted against me. I think you should do it. You know, I accept that the board, the board, and, and they didn't want to do it because, because I, I, I was, felt strongly that we shouldn't. So, um, um, but it, it caused a problem because, because um, the chief executive felt that he couldn't hit his targets. He couldn't make his money this year unless we did the premium charge. And here I was blocking it. So um, um, anyway, so we kind of, they went away and came up with some other version. And I, I, I proposed my version, which I thought was, was, was kind of a better version, but um, it didn't raise as much money and it wasn't as straightforward and it was a bit more sort of, sort of opaque, really, than, 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 than um, the, the one that was implemented. But um, anyway, so we did, we did introduce the, 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 the premium charge. Um, um, you know, I accepted it. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't my decision. But um, I absolutely accepted it. It did cause a problem. Um, people made an enormous amount of noise about it. They were very unhappy about it. But most of those people who were unhappy about it were at the time making plenty of money anyway. They just weren't making as much. Um, and some of those people were incurring quite a lot of costs in making that money, perhaps. We didn't realize that. Um, but it was, it was a difficult time for the company because we were slightly at war with some of our customers and it created a lot of bad publicity, which, you know, you know, I guess continues to this day, but it's not, it's not particularly unreasonable. Um, I don't think, but, um, it wasn't my thing. Um, it was, it was, um, I guess it was the company's thing. After about 10 or 11 years, I wasn't seeing eye to eye with the board. We had a bit of a disagreement and I decided the only way that the company could fix, could fix it would be if I left. Um, so I decided myself that I had to go because I couldn't, I couldn't quite reconcile myself to basically, um, um, I guess, I guess my fallout was reasonably terminal and, um, I didn't want the company to suffer because of that. So I decided to leave. That was kind of a difficult thing for me. And having made that decision, I guess I'd then start to get my money out and put it into other things that kind of fit into my life at that time. In the 20 years since the site's founding, a lot has happened. Today, Betfair is included in the giant gaming conglomerate, which, interestingly, has changed its name back to Flutter. They own a bunch of household brands, including PokerStars, FanDuel, Paddy Power, and the U.S. racing company, TVG. And a lot has changed for Bert. Betfair made him wealthy, and he's invested that money in an eclectic group of businesses. I sold it off steadily over time, and I've shifted it into other areas. I've done some pretty weird things. Um, I own a large share of a biotech company that makes vaccines. Um, I bought the building that they're in, which is an old Victorian waterworks in London, very attractive, very large building. Um, I, I kind of own an oil company and an oil re-refinery or half an oil re-refinery in Denmark. We, we take all our 
is a waste to our company and running that's a big part of my life and I sort of drifted into that in a rather strange way there's a lot of other stuff I've, I've got I've, I've got my stud where I live we've got like 110 horses here and, and half a stables with Michael Owen, the footballer. And um, um, I just have a lot of horses in training. There's all that sort of stuff going on in my life. Bert has his hands in a lot of different things, but some of his early interests continue as lifelong pursuits. He still plays bridge at a high level. I'm, 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 a, I'm a pretty good bridge player. Um, there are better than me in, 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 in the UK, but I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm up with, you know, most of the serious, serious guys here. Um, but um, um, I've, I've just had better coaching. And I think, I think the best guys, they are just like totally dedicated to their art. And I think ultimately, you know, I've got some ability there, but I'm not as dedicated as they are. I, you know, I can't put the same hours in that they do. Bert's interest in racing has shifted over the years. He may have toyed with being a professional better early in his life, but now he's mostly a recreational player. Throughout my time at Betfair, I lost money consistently because I didn't care. And because most of my betting was completely social. So I would go out, you know, you'd go off to Cheltenham or something like that. You'd meet up with people and you'd be with customers and you're betting. And I'm, and I'm probably betting way too big, but I'm having, a, I'm having a good time. I'm out with people. I'm out with kind of, I'm out with my people, if you know what that means. I sort of, you know, I sort of, you know, to me, to me, kind of Cheltenham was, is kind of like, where I feel most at home, you know, you're, you know, I, there were people I would only ever see there. And, um, I just love being with them and, 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 and betting with them and just, just, you know, enjoying all of the chit chat from that. So, so, you know, throughout my time at Betfair, it was completely social. I didn't spend much time at all thinking about form. I didn't spend much time at all looking value or, or, you know, it was just literally, you just grab the paper and you pick something that you like and you'd have a bet that's probably much too big on it. Um, these days, it's a little bit similar to that. So there's not an awful lot of form study going on, not because I don't want to do it. I just haven't got the time for it or necessarily the enthusiasm because my life is very busy now. You know, I've got four kids and, you know, quite a lot of different business interests and I dip in and out and I play bridge all the time and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, so there just isn't, isn't the time to really get stuck into that kind of form analysis that I think you need to be doing if you're going to be successful. So you need to just open the page and you just look at horses and you know every single horse and you know what they've been doing and you've got a feeling about them and, you know, if this is their ground or this is their distance or whatever it is that, 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 that you know, you think is going to drive value, you know, those they're kind of things that are already loaded up in your brain. And, and if I open the paper now and look at it, it's just, you know, I just don't recognize any of the horse names. It's just, I'm just distanced from it. So I'm a loser now um, at the moment, and I don't bet very much. On the day that I talked to Bert, he was monitoring horse sales. He has a 330-acre farm southwest of London that started as just a few fields and a single paddock. Over the years, he's built it into a substantial operation. He thinks a lot about breeding. And he uses the same analytical mind that at various times has been focused on programming, betting, or building businesses. Yeah, we had a good year this year, but it's difficult to make money breeding horses. We, we um, I think um, our horses at Tattersall's are main sale in the UK. I think we sold, we got about 1.4 million pounds in for what we sold. I think my costs, you know, are working out depreciation of the mayor, so, so on and so forth. It probably comes to about that figure or slightly less. So, so you know, we kind of made small money this year, I guess. Um, maybe last year we might have lost small money. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not sort of, uh, we're not moving the dial in any big way here. But we do, we certainly get by, and we have a good professional operation, and and, and you know, we sell, we're selling good horses to the 
to the most deserving people and so on and so forth. So it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of getting by here, but I'm not getting rich on it. When I started to look into Betfair, I assumed that it all would have been an obvious idea. Maybe that's because gambling and the markets occupy adjacent areas in my brain. So I was almost delighted to hear that history isn't so simple. The actual success of the site required someone with deep domain knowledge who'd been thinking about it for years and made it all work when the smart money was backing a different idea. I'm proud to have created a very big successful business that employs a lot of people. I really thought the software was a good effort. You know, it was um, it was a really nicely designed piece of work and probably the best, well, almost certainly the best piece of work I've ever um, um, delivered in my time. And I'll be doing well if I ever do anything that good again. So, so yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. And I'd say I'd probably take more pride in that than the success of the business. But, um, yeah, they're both nice. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Andrew Black for taking the time to do this interview. I also want to thank some prior guests of this show for lending a hand to this episode. I asked Richard Munchkin, Jack Andrews, and Bill Zimba if they had any ideas for questions to ask. They all said to ask him about the premium charge. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Half Kelly. 